Inshu, Baltic, Real Harshal, Oriko Tools. A very warm, hearty welcome to the second episode of Tools Indigenous Perspectives. Each month, we'll have a different guest from uh, somewhere else in the world, and we'll hear about their life ways, language, and lore. And this month's chat is with Dr. Hannah uh, O'Regan from the Kaitaho uh, South Island, Maori. And uh, I first met Hannah about four years ago, just over four years ago after we've been uh, chatting for a couple of years and sharing our ideas and things. Uh, and we had a wonderful meeting and they came and uh, visited us, uh, Hannah and 40 friends from uh, the Maori people uh, in Glasgow for a Kaylee. And then out to Dunad in, in Argyll, and I still have my hockey that I was gifted, uh, which is a, a wonderful thing to be able to, uh, to have. Um, and the chat went fantastically well. We pre-recorded, given the time difference. Uh, it was a, a really good weather, and I hope you enjoy it too. So here's episode two with uh, Dr. Hannah Negan. Tēnā koe, Kari. Kia ora, tēnā koe, Good to see you again. You're looking well. It's been a full four years since we last uh, spoke face to face, either digitally or in person. I don't know where those four years have gone, Ehoa, but it's lovely to see you as well. You too. So I'm going to introduce myself uh, as my people would introduce themselves. It's Misha Agev, Machgemish Vik, Ichgemish Vor, Ichgeremich, Ichgemish, Ichgorachi, Ichgemish, Agis, Misha Kuchach. Nambal de Flamish Clodge. So um, I've recited my patronymic, so that's uh, my uh, father's going back seven generations, and I'm also, broadly speaking, belong to uh, the clan Cloud. Uh, would you be able to introduce yourself in your language as you normally would? Kia ora, wo tēnei te mihia tu kia koe, uh, ko tēnei te mihia tu o Auraki Mauka ki a koutou, ko Auraki te Mauka, ko Waitaki te awa, ko te Waipaunamu te waka, rā, ko te wako o Auraki, Naira ka hapu o kātiraki amo o kātirua hikihiki i te taho taku hākoro e mihia tuana kia koutou. So firstly, uh, my mountain, my tribal mountain of Auraki, the, the mountain of the people of Kaitaho of the South Island, mihi and send our regards through to your mountains. Um, my river, my tribal river is Waitaki and my canoe is the canoe of the South Island uh, of on which we reside. And in that vein, we greet you. Ite taho taku hakui e karaka tuana ki to koto taha me o koto moka he uri tene o tefano o McTaggart nareira koe tene te tahi o karawa ho mihiatuana. On my mother's side, I'd just like to make the link that uh, our roots go back to Scotland. Uh, we are from the McTaggart clan, uh, from the clan of Ross, and with those connections, I come to you tonight, and I'm very excited mm. to be a part of the conversation. Kia ora. Wonderful, wonderful. Nga mihi. Falche kriol kharb, so lost in Chico to be got twos. So very, very warm welcome to, to twos. Um, for the viewers uh, watching, my, myself and Hannah have been in touch now for about five or six years, I think, all together. Um, and you also uh, visited us uh, with a good number of your, your people um, about four years ago. Um, and we had a good old knees up on a Friday night. And okay. we also came into <laughs> ceremony together in Dunad in Argyll. And somehow I had managed to uh, not 
have this information filtered down in my mind yet that uh, McTaggart, of course, McTaggart, McIntaggart, um, that's an Argyllshire name. So when we came into ceremony together at Dunad, uh, you were very, very close to uh, where your, your people were from. Um, and in fact, there was a castle which was recently uncovered by lowering water levels, uh, which belonged to the McTaggart people in sight of Dunad. So, in fact, uh, the connection deepens. <clears throat> it was one of the most memorable times of my life to be there and in, in participating in that ceremony and feeling the connections of my ancestors so of both sides, being able to celebrate them with you and uh, but also bring my Maori side from New Zealand to that place. Uh, it was an incredible, incredibly special moment. I would, I would echo that. Um, and our, our small uh, band of intrepid gales were, were so nervous. But <laughs> when we heard the, the Maori prayer uh, just on, on the level of, of the dune just below us, uh, that, that just blew away any sort of doubts. Um, it really cleansed the atmosphere there. The atmosphere has been different there ever since. Uh, and it really blew away a lot of negative energy uh, for us in, in that place. Um, and uh, it's it's been... The atmosphere has been so much more receptive since the, the Maori people visited us. So well, the honour was uh, impossible to put into words in any language. Um, so that's our connection. Um, fantastic to see you again. I wonder if you would indulge myself uh, just with an idea of who in general the Maori people are. Where, where do you come from? How did you come to be in Aotearoa? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm hoping that the audience knows that we're New Zealanders geographically in the world. I mean, we're a little island in the South Pacific, uh, but I'm hoping you've got some kind of geographical reference. But the, the origins of the Māori people, we are uh, people of the Pacific. We are East Polynesian by origin. Um, and that means when, when the Pacific, when Polynesia was settled, it really was settled from, that came down through, we're part of the Austronesian language family, that came down through Southeast Asia, from the Philippines, from the, the, the space of Taiwan, the Philippines, they moved in um, to what we now refer to as Polynesia. And the first <laughs> prototype of our languages, our culture, our people, uh, were based in what we call the Western Polynesia, which is Samoa, Tonga and Fiji. And from there, they moved east. They went up to Tahiti, to Hawaii. And the last migration out was pretty much through to Easter Island, the Cook Islands and down to Aotearoa. So Aotearoa, New Zealand, was the, the last significant landmass to be settled in the world, really and um through the pacific so we linguistically we're connected to those of really closely to east polynesia so pretty intellig intelligible in terms of our languages with tahiti the cook island wow. society islands and hawaii uh but we you know we're quite a distance away from them but that's where our, our origin is and so my people um in the south island of new zealand there's a north and south uh, we, our, our tradition has us arriving first in the north and, and finding that that place was pretty much preoccupied and so journeyed south to, if you can imagine, um, the, the world, the difference in terms of the world that they encountered. The South Island is colder, it goes from sub-Antarctic in the south and the southern ends um, to uh, subtropical in the northern ends. And these were people coming from the tropics of East Polynesia 
into the first time they would have seen snow, the first time they have entered into that world. And, and those mm. were my ancestors that travelled those seas and, and then settled the South Island of New Zealand, the Kaikahu people. So I use my dialect. Um, some people in the north refer to it as Ngaitahu. So the Nga, Ngaitahu. In the south, we use our, our dialect changes the NG to the K, and so we call ourselves the Kaitahu, the Kaitahu people. So is that the same change as um, for a person, and um, you would say tangata, but you would say takata, is that is that correct? Absolutely, that... yeah. So okay. the word for indigenous people is uh, tangata whenua. In the south, we would say takata whenua. Uh, and, and it's a bit weird. I'm, I'm one of a few people in our tribe that still uses our dialect, that has learned mm -hmm. our dialect and uses our dialect. So it's still quite weird, um, different uh, to most people who use the language. But um, I'm yeah. somebody who espouses, mm -hmm. uh, the, who, who takes the position that it is a, an inc a, a legacy worth protecting and holding on to. So I, I use our southern dialect. I completely understand, uh, as, as you know from our discussions over the years, um, myself and my family essentially speak a dialect um, and unfortunately, very sadly, we've lost the last of our elders just over the last year uh, for the dialect. So there's, it's now just myself and my family who, who speak it. So we are uh, quite genuinely a dialect island. So I understand very much, uh, you know, uh, that resonates with, with me strongly. And you just have to take the position that there is a richness in it that speaks for itself and hope that you can be a worthy vessel of that and and uh, to take it from there. So, um, I, as I understand it, um, there, there was more, um, there was more arable land in the North Island than in the South. Would that be correct in saying that? It, um, there's arable land in the south, but the problem is that we don't have the same temperatures. So the south is colder. And at the moment, we're in the middle of winter. So we have, in the morning, I'm walking out to ice and frost outside. Um, and the staple um, that the Māori brought from Poland, through Polynesia, the, 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 what was the kumaro, the sweet potato, yeah. now that, grow, that grew well in the, in the north, so they developed an economy based on the production of the sweet potato of the kumara in the south there are only a few pockets where it grows and so right. basically the difference in the culture the adaptation to the environment meant that my people were, were um, established a culture based on hunting and gathering and of seasonal migration across the, the south island and when we've got in the middle of our island we've got the an alps we've got the alps uh, and then it's no mean feat to get from one side to the other. So our people were, they had base settlements, but they would have in connections across with what we call hapu or our clans across the island where they specialised in the production of certain foods and they would trade with other clans around the South Island um, to keep that, keep as a basis of their economy and as a basis mm -hmm. of their subsistence. So yeah, we um we've got fertile lands, they're just not um warm fertile lands. Right. And so we have had to adapt to the climate. And like I said, in the south, right down at the end of the island to sub-Antarctic temperatures, that really can be quite um formidable. 
yeah, in, indeed, indeed. It, it reminds me, in fact, of the Scottish situation whereby the, the eastern and southern portions of the country are, are extremely fertile um, and quite dry. And then the north and west uh, is less possible to grow a great range of things. Uh, and the people, uh, the Highland people retained uh, much more of a, a hunting culture um, and relied much more on that side of things than they did on, on, on planting crops. So um, to move on to um, a darker period in history then with contact coming in and um, when when did you first start to see uh, European settlers arriving in Aotearoa? Well, Captain Cook arrived in the late um, 1700s, but we had, um, when we talk about settlement, that was really from the beginning of the 1800s. And so I know when we compare ourselves to our Irish and our Scottish and our Welsh relations in Europe, um, the, we're talking many hundreds of years after colonisation occurred in those areas. But I have to say the the tools of colonisation, almost like the blueprint that was used to colonise the uh, the Gaelic Isles, were were introduced to New Zealand, and the same techniques, the same tools were used in the colonisation of places like New Zealand. Uh, so in the early 1800s, we start to see sealers and whalers coming in. They were the first wave of migration. Uh, and at that stage, Māori was still the dominant, Māori still were what we call the mana, whakahaere, they were in control, they had um, sovereignty over their own lands and resources, and negotiated with the sealers and the whalers around um, access to resources, etc. But when we get into the mid-1800s, so like 1820, we start to have the first clashes in terms of settlers coming over, uh, people wanting to come to New Zealand to settle. And that was the difference. Yeah. So most places yeah. in the Pacific, um, it wasn't colonisation for settlement purpose. It was colonisation for the exploitation of resources. But there are a couple of countries, pretty much us in Hawaii, that we used as places to resettle populations from other parts of the world, from, from Europe, from Ireland and Scotland. And... <laughs> Um, and so w what we started to see was a pressure in the um, in the mid 1800s with more and more people, both from Fran France and from England, coming wow. through to New Zealand. Uh -huh. uh, and we have a treaty that was signed in 1840 uh, that was supported by many of the chiefs from around the different tribes of the country uh, because they were worried about the unruly behaviour of the people uh, that had come to our shores and wanted to um, get the Queen pretty much to sort out their people and to establish some protocols of engagement uh, going forward. So it was yeah. an interesting time. So pretty much from about 1840 where the treaty was signed, we can see changes in the way that settlement and interaction and engagement happened in the country. Mm -hmm. and, 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 at, and at points where um, the, the settlers were engaging in pretty negative, extractive behaviour, as I understand it, uh, the Maori at, at times very fiercely resisted this. And I often talk to people about um, the Gales from Ireland and Scotland being the most feared fighting force in Western Europe and being a real, uh, you know, force to be reckoned with. And then I read about the Maori 
and I think, ooh, <laughs> I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to take them on, you know. So I understand that there was pretty fierce stout resistance from from your people whenever things became uh, more I- extractive and and more obstreperous from the settler point of view. It, 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 we had different experiences in different parts of the country, and so mm-hmm. it's fair to say that. Um, as you can see, there's a bit of a Gaelic heritage going on in, in, in me right here, right now. Um, but I can say that, you know, we have uh, the, the way that New Zealand was settled um, was quite different in the different jurisdictions. So we had in my tribe a very early contact, but because we were, we didn't have, we, because we were hunting and gathering culture, because we worked on seasonal migration, it was actually easier to colonize the South Island. They they pretty much, we mm. call them this autocracy. They came in, they set up house and they just claimed the lands. And, and we um, turned to Christianity quite early on and believed that they were going to be people of that word and believed that the, the promises made would be upheld. And of course that mm. didn't, that didn't transpire. Uh, but in other parts of the of the island, uh, uh, other parts of the North Island, uh, there was colonisation by right of um, by right of confiscation. So the crown confiscated huge regional areas. It's almost like the Highland clearances yeah. Um, yeah. in the way that they approached it. They didn't need really any kind of um, justification. Somebody might have slighted somebody, some someone, and that gave rise to the justification to take um, thousands of hectares off someone else. So, you know, they used whatever tool they could to um, to empower themselves, and none of it was really just, and it didn't actually abide by their own laws, but. At the end of the day, um, for my people in the south, we actually entered into a series of contracts of sale. Um, what we ended up, we we ended up having to take a grievance against the crown um, for the failure to honour the contracts that we had entered entered into. Ninety uh, percent of the South Island we sold, and we asked to reserve one tenth of every fair average piece of land for our people to inhabit. Uh, along with schools, hospitals, and churches, mm-hmm. and the crown never, <laughs> never, never um, did good on that one tenth. Uh, and so, within a twenty-year period, all of our land was gone. We were impoverished. We had, we were um, dislocated as a people. We were disenfranchised. Our communities were broken up. And of course, when you break up communities and you can't live, you have no high density areas of people. You also mm-hmm. Um, suffer language loss very early on, and that's what happened with us. Uh, so and my tribe, pretty much the first to suffer systematic language loss within all the tribes of the country. And, and this this leads on to closer to our present day, um, with a, a, a claim for 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 rights to do with land, isn't it? Your people were quite heavily involved, and in, in how how did that work? So our tr- the treaty was signed in 1840, and um, our land sales happened uh, pretty shortly after we had sold blocks of the the land, um, but within, like I said, a 20 year year period. So the first one was in 1844, and it went to 1864. Um, but very quickly we <coughs> saw that the contracts weren't being honoured by the by the by the English crown by the crown. 
Um, mm. And so our first claim against the Crown for the injustices and the, and the, the failure to deliver on what was promised was actually in 1849. Mm. And my tribe had the longest unbroken petition in terms of uh, fighting for the, those grievances um in anywhere in the country and it, it extended 150 years it was seven <clears throat> generations of an unbroken petition for the fight for justice that was settled um to, uh, around 22 years ago now uh and and so in my lifetime um that seven generation we are now in the eighth generation um, but it was seven generations of unbroken litigation unbroken petition against the crown for for their failure to honour their side of the the bargain, and the, the really difficult thing, as I understand it, is the idea that so many generations were engaged in that struggle and never actually got to see the boon for, from it. Absolutely, yeah, it's, it's quite um, tough to reconcile, I would imagine. <clears throat> so it is tough to reconcile, and when you think about our language and culture, um, and and what it meant, you know, I think of those generations. So my father was actually the um, the chief or the leader of our tribe that brought us into settlement. And so my life as I've grown up has been dominated by the conversations around, or the, the, the rhetoric, the conversations around the claim. We call it the claim, te kereme, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, against the crown. And yeah, the, that legacy has had a, a, a profound impact on my life. Uh, but when we think about it, they every generation, they actually never, they would give of themselves in a way which was complete um, yeah. for this fight where they never expected to see the rewards come to them in their time. So we had this whakatauki or this um, metaphor, metaphor? Yeah, it's a metaphor um, that says, a saying that says, for us and our children after us. And that refers to the fight that it's not, it, although we're fighting for ourselves, we're actually fighting for the generations to come. And yeah. in the early um, 1900s, one of the ancestors from my village, from my marae at Moiraki said, um, had this other uh, proverb that said, uh, he mahi kai huaka, he mahi kai takata. And that translates, he mahi kai huaka, the work that devours the green stone. Oh, I'm not wearing green stone. I'm wearing bone. Um, our jade, which is one of our one of our most precious stones. So, um, the 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 sandstone is the only thing that can work the the green stone in pre-European times in New Zealand, and it was a laborious task. It took a long time, but the beauty that was left was this precious gem. There was this, this precious stone, and that that proverb said. As work devour, uh, sorry, as the sandstone devours the greenstone, so will this labor devour our people. There will be generations that will be consumed, but at the end of that work, we will have something as precious and as beautiful as our greenstone. And I think of that, and I think that's the difference between us and our the the colonial powers was that it wasn't for immediate gratification. It wasn't for um things that we thought were going to come to us in our lifetime this was a this was a fight that we knew had to be intergenerational like the intergenerational fight for our language and that uh we would give of ourselves in a way that would ensure that the 
perseverance, the persistence culturally, linguistically, and just by being here of our people in future generations. So this is a tremendous legacy because it sets the tone for how future struggles should be engaged in. It's it's a, a, a way in which young people can look at that example and they can say this is this is how we need to approach this going forward. We need to understand that we're part of a continuum. Um, uh, we, we certainly struggle a little bit here with that. There's a lot of individualism. People are looking for what they can get out of the language and the culture, not what yeah. they can uh, invest in. Um, so we could certainly we could learn a lot from 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 that. Um, in terms of the language, then at, at the moment, um, how how many people um, then speak uh, the Kaitahu uh, dialect as things stand? If we think of so, so we are quite lucky in New Zealand, and I know this is completely different in Scotland. Um, that we have one language, and our dialects are all intelligible. We can understand each other, so they're not that different. That we, you know, it might sound a bit different, but it's more like an accent rather than um, rather than a whole different uh, language. So, with us, with Maori even though the Kaitahu dialect is quite unique and has some peculiarities that others don't have. Um, and the rest of the country have got a little bit used to me speaking speaking it. Um, it, it it's still very, it has a high correlation with the other North Island dialects. Yeah. Um, but when we think of our tribe, um, so Māori in general, about 23%, of Maori of the Maori population have an have an ability to have a basic level conversation in Te Reo, in the Maori language. So twenty three percent have conversation language, but that's at a pretty basic level, and it's also a self assessment of their language proficiency. In the the statistics that we we use within my own tribe. Um, we drop down from that 23% to around 11%. And even with the 11%, I'm thinking, where are they? Because I don't see them around. Um, uh, so we've got, we, that my tribe have the lowest language statistics of anyone in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, but we, we have a new dynamic that's occurring, which is quite exciting. And I think when I spoke to you, Adam, um, four years ago, we were taught we 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 had been in in the throes of our language revitalization strategy for an, for a long time there, and I remember our Papa Timoti, our language mentor, um, saying, "If these guys can do it, anyone can do it," because they've come back from literally the the whole of the grave. They've pulled themselves out of the grave to um to revitalize their language, and I say that because when we started and <clears throat> excuse me in 1995. Uh, we we did a bit of an assessment of how many native native speakers we had left alive at that time, and we identified five. We had five native speakers alive in 1995. Um, by 2002, we had two left. They lived next door to each other um, in the same town, but they'd had an argument, so they wouldn't speak to each other. Um, oh. You know. It, I know, right? It's like really, it's just really a thing. Um, so, With all due respect, sort it out. <laughs> I know, I know. So 
these two had been raised with our in, uh, raised with our dialect uh, with the language as their first language um but they yeah they they it wasn't part of their vernacular in their adult lives um yeah. so yeah that was where we were the situation we were in and our the last native speaker died in 2000 2011 um on the 5th of december and of course for us in 2011 in this region we suffered the christchurch earthquake so everyone was worried about earthquakes and and they were pretty traumatic and of course my mind went to how are we going to what are we going to do about our language when everyone else is concerned with the the, the task of survival literal survival of their homes their families water air safety hygiene uh the extra effort that's required to invest into the language was you know not an immediate concern and and so i farewelled our uncle jacko who was our last native speaker um at at our marae at our village and i I lamented the fact that we had lost our last speaker. So within that time, um, we had been, I've talked about our language strategy from 1995, we'd had a vision, we wanted to to do something different. We actually followed the edict of um, Professor Joshua Fishman from New York, this Jewish professor from New York, who um, we boldly actually in 2000 asked to come and speak to us. You know, he was this incredible, incredible academic who had uh, revitalized the Yiddish language. We thought, oh, well, why don't we just write to the guy and see if he'd come and speak to us? And so he came to our little tribe at the end of the extremities of the world in New Zealand and he um, shared with us his insights on how to revitalize the language and he said, if you want to bring a language back to life, it has to be in the home. It's all very well being in the schools and everything else, but if it's not an intergenerational language of transmission, then it won't survive the generations. And so we set about our language strategy, um, which is now, we've just had our 21st birthday, uh, which, uh, yeah, concentrated on bringing the language back into our homes and and that's where we've ended up. So my children have been raised with Māori as their first language, like yours, um, against the odds, against the tides, against the currents of um, of popular discourse, right? You know, you're always oh, pushing always. in the battle. <laughs> uh, but um, they're not alone. We've got a small group. We've got a troop um, within the tribe who have committed likewise to the strategy. And... In my family, they're the first in five generations to speak Māori as, in, as their first language. So um, against the odds, um, I guess that's that tenacity and stubbornness might be a bit of the Scottish in me too, um, the Gale in me too, that, you know, that yeah. stubbornness is like, we're going to do this irrespective of whether or not you think we can't. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I gather that um, your great grandmother uh, grew up in a bilingual household. Um, this was your your Maori speaking great grandmother, uh, but the English was the dominant language. And this was, I think, she was was she born in eighteen seventy? Would that be a bit right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, my, my own my own great grandfather, <laughs> my own great grandfather was born in exactly the same circumstances, of course, in a, in a Gaelic 
uh, speaking household, but with English just starting to become the dominant language in 1869. So just exactly the wow. same time period. Um, and he grew up, he must have been a speaker because all his older siblings were. Um, but then when he went to school, English just took over. And then my grandmother only had a couple of phrases that she made sure to pass on to me, but had no command of the language. And it seemed very similar to, 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 to yeah. your own story with Maori. Does, does that, would that be correct? Absolutely. So my great-grandparents were native speakers and my grandmother was born in 1900 and Māori was not her first language. So even though her parents were native speakers, they didn't pass it on and they to their five children. So she had words at her disposal. She knew phrases, some songs. She was actually a, a beautiful singer. I don't know what happened there in terms of the genes, but... Um, and so she was a performer uh, and would sing Māori songs, but it was very limited in terms of the the productive element of te reo, of our language. Uh, certainly when she had my father, she was quite old at, at the in those times. She was over 40 when she had my father. And she, you know, would call him. She would use Māori terms. She would say, you know, come, haere mai e tama, come to me, boy. She would use words for food um, and sing songs and those kind of things and, and would use his Māori name for him. But pretty oh. much it wasn't a part of the, the upbringing. And she died before I was born. My father ended up learning the language as a second language, but he didn't use it at home. So uh, again, yeah. I had to start from scratch. And I think that's what we know, right? We know within language revitalization, if you don't pass it on to the next generation deliberately, uh, they have to start from, from dot again. They have to start from scratch again. And that's when I made the call um, before I, I was lucky enough to be able to have children. I didn't think I could have them. And so when I became hapu, when I got pregnant with my daughter, I made a commitment to raise him speaking te reo, even though it was my second language. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, it wasn't easy, but I wanted to break that. I wanted to break that chain and, okay. yeah, break the yeah. chain and literally um, give them the opportunities where they didn't have to, they didn't have to fight for it. And interestingly enough, I, you know, I thought that I was a bit probably over the top in terms of my lectures for them. I, I'll blame the Irish side on this, but I think I might have been a little bit harsh and trying to, um, you know, hit home on the importance of language um, transmission and maintaining. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> I, I actually, in my PhD, I wrote a chapter called The Intergenerational Transmission of Guilt. <laughs> Um, and the reason I did that is because, you know, I would be like, you know, the language will die with you if you don't speak to it. And because when they hit five, they started, they went to school and then they started talking English to each other. And I'm and I'm like, um, if you don't speak the language, it's, you're going to kill it. You're murdering the language, you know. <laughs> And I honestly, I that, that really hit home for me, Adam, when um, we had the earthquakes in 2011. Mm -hmm. So this was incredible. Christchurch literally was just um, shaken from our roots, shaken from our foundations. It was the worst 
thing you can imagine that all of a sudden you're four o'clock in the morning and the house is just, we didn't ever experience earthquakes. Next minute you're getting thrown from side to side. It was incredible. And we lived at the beach. And I'm thinking, once I realized this was an earthquake, I'm thinking, we're, we're done. This is gone. And there was this incredible moment. You know, I went and yelled at their father to get one child. I went to get another. I managed to get all the children in the one place and we, we got thrown up against the wall. And there was, you know, it was, it was, it was dramatic. I managed to get all the children in the bed and I'm like, right, you know, we're at the beach. I need to go and get my survival kit. I had a tsunami kit. I needed to go get a torch, radio, etc. And my son started started wailing. He was six years old. And he goes, Mama, Mama, go. And more how I been AI. He said, Mum, Mum, I know why this has happened. And I'm like, Kate the Paitama Eto, the Hoyo get the tiki the mefakora. Baby, just settle down. I need to go get our survival stuff. Yeah. And, he, and he was going, Mum, Carl, Carl, Mama, Carl, we're hiding. Don't go, Mum. I know why this has happened. And I said, What are you talking about? And he goes, I've been speaking English to Manuhaya. <laughs> the worst possible thing that had happened in their lives. He said, the gods basically had had been angered to the point that the world was shaking because he's been speaking English to his daughter. And you know what? This is the intergenerational transmission of guilt. You know what I did at that moment, Adam? You can think what a good mother might do. And then you can reflect on what I did. I said, no, darling. No. It's in, I said to him, Māori, it's not your fault. Calm down. I need to get a torch. But then I turned around to him and I said, but you really should speak Māori to your sister. <laughs> <laughs> the house was shaking. <coughs> the house was still shaking. So, uh, just think, you know, the... Um, that's an the, incredible story, though. Absolutely. Yeah, incredible. I still cringe thinking about it. Um, I'm sure it'll be something they remind me of in later, later on in life. But such is the passion that we take, that we hold our, our dedication to our language for. I understand only too well that the times I've found myself bursting into the room, you know, uh, uh, because maybe they've spent an hour with their mum so the language switches over to English because that's what she speaks with them. Uh, and then I've come home and then I come up the stairs and I overhear them speaking English. That's me out of the room. You know, so you, what are you doing? You're speaking in the language that murdered their language, you know. <laughs> and then it's like you walk out and you go, oh, wait a minute. I better go in and add something to that, at least. <laughs> now that they've switched over, speak their own language again, I better go in and actually encourage the fact that they're doing that as well, just to balance it up. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I share your pain, my brother. I share your pain. But, you know, I think my, my children will joke about it. They will. But, you know, the other side of it is they do not know what it's like not to have the language. And I think this is the thing we have to remember, right? My children do not know what the world is like to not have their language. And I remember, you know, I said that we had the strategy of bringing the language to, uh, we had uh, the, our tribal strategy was kotahi mano kaika, kotahi mano wawata. 
a thousand homes speaking the realization of a thousand dreams or aspirations. And that was by by the year 2025, we wanted to have a thousand homes within our tribe speaking our language. And I remember something coming up on the radio um, at the death of one of our language um, leaders. Um, And my son, you know, I'm driving my son to school and he's going, well, well, that didn't work. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is on the radio. I'm like, I'm saying to him and Māori, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, there aren't a thousand homes speaking the language, so that didn't work. And he's having this conversation with me and Māori, which is not a wise thing to do when you're the driver, you know, you're driving and they're in the passenger seat and they're trying to have an argument with you. And I said, what do you mean it hasn't worked? You know, we've got, and he goes, well, I don't know where those th- where those a thousand homes are. Um, you know, that hasn't worked, that the, the strategy failed. And I said, excuse me, just think about what language you're talking about. And so I'm having this argument with my son who's saying to me that we hadn't achieved what we'd set out to achieve. And here is my son having the argument in the language with me. (laughs) And I'm like, you have, he hadn't comprehended that the fact that he was speaking the language and having this argument. That's brilliant. That's just you can't ask for more. <laughs> he had not. He could not comprehend where success lay in that picture. And I sat there thinking, I really don't want to rear end another car right now. I've got to keep calm. But it was just that point where I thought that this child has no idea of what it's like to not have the language. Like you know, for they actually have to go out and learn it as a second language to. Yeah not have it as your he he has a choice that i didn't have that three four generations before him didn't have yeah. and he it's beyond their realm of comprehension and so i think we have to remind ourselves sometimes when we are coming down you know the intergenerational transmission of guilt we have to remind ourselves sometimes that they are the burden of success with our children is such that we have to also remind ourselves that what we have given them will mean that they don't have the same experience that we've had and therefore will assess the landscape of language in a different way. Yeah, or without, without a shadow of a doubt. And, it, and it is, it's very, very difficult to, to find a point on how different that mentality will be from ours where we're scrabbling for survival you know for years on end just you know tooth and nail just to make sure that the language is passed on and then they're just blithely blethering away you know it's a, it's a joy and also just a wee wry smile on the other side of the face like oh yeah so what at the moment then uh does the the, the future look like um, in terms of your Tereo revitalization, what are the next steps that we can expect to, to see um, happening within the, the language community? Well, within my tribe, I have to say we have had a bit of a turning point, and I think I might just be getting old within it. But just recently, in the la- last month, we we came together. A number of us came together to celebrate our twenty first birthday of our strategy, and. 
I sat there with some of my nephews or for our tribal nephews um, and nieces and was mm -hmm. able to bask in the glow of their amazing, their amazingness, if that's a word. Um, and it really hit me that um, even though when certainly not through the woods, that within those 21 years from literally from clinging on to the side of the grave and pulling ourselves up, that we we have the realms of possibility, the horizons of possibility are now more visible than they ever have been. This year, last year, uh, the top national scholar for language excellence in the country was one of our babies. Oh, um, so competing against all the other tribes, um, that he took out this top scholar, one of our, one of our, my nephews, who who is a baby of our language revitalization effort, um, who's now eighteen. Yeah, he's not a baby no more. <laughs> um, he he took out the top grade in the excellence um, examinations for the language, um, awesome. and I'm now that the language of the next generation has surpassed mine. Um, I am, whilst I was the language teacher and the, the mentor and the advocate and all those things, their language now far surpasses mine. I, I, I won't tell that directly to my children just yet. You know, I think that I, I'll hold off just a little bit. I'll maintain <laughs> some, some um, semblance of dominance just for a few years yet. But certainly... Um, when you ask me the, the what's next in store, I'm really excited about the next generation coming, and, and it'll be the test. You know, we know we know within the language world, and especially with Indigenous languages, the the, the uh, Professor Joshua Fishman's edict of it takes one generation to lose a language and at least three to get it back. Right. Um, I know we're not yeah, out of yeah. I know that I've raised um, two children with Māori as their first language. Uh, however, the proof will be whether or not they raise their children. Until I've got grandchildren whose first language is Māori, I'm, I'm not going to rest easy. And so it's not that I'm encouraging. They've, they've just turned 18 and 17. So I'm not saying that they need to go and produce baby mokopuna, um grandchildren for me straight away. Yeah. Um, but, for, you know, like with the earthquake scenario, I've been, I've been sharing with them from a very early age um, the necessity to make sure that they, uh, that they respect the, this legacy of language and that they raise their children speaking the language. I've said I don't care who you marry as long as they can speak Kadel, um, as long as my, my mokopuna are raised with, with Māori as their first language, I'll be happy. Mm. And if they don't, well, then I'm coming to get the grandchildren and I will be raising the grandchildren. So they know that. Um, that probably, sounds very familiar once again, Hannah. <laughs> they've, probably, they've probably got their escape routes already planned. Um, <laughs> But I know where they live at the moment and I'm making them pretty dependent on me so that I will be there. So, you know, yeah. what's the future? The future is far more positive. The horizon of opportunity is more positive in this generation than it was in mine. 
Uh, we cannot, we don't have to just envision a future. We can see it in front of us. Mm. Um, it's actually tangible. Uh, the challenge now is to make sure we caress it and fondle it and nurture it in a way that um, makes it safe and keeps it safe for the next generation. And, and what we have to do, I, I, I wonder if you agree with this then, is perhaps come back to some faith in, in what we have done and what we have managed to inculcate into our kids that having raised them from birth with their own language and their culture and all that side of things, that even if at times there is, you know, a little uh, resistance to the to the, the heavy-handedness or whatever, um, that we've put enough into them that when it comes time to have their own kids, those patterns will then play out once again. We just have to have faith, I believe, that we've put enough in to see it then come out in, a, in the next generation. I think um, the combination, my friend, of faith and fear. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, like, absolutely, that we have invested enough into them that they have faith that it is not only possible, but it is desirable. When I say fear, the fear of me coming in and haunting them if they don't actually um, to do it. But I do think, yeah. uh, I do think, as time has transpired, I think in the last few years it's been more challenging, but now they are seeing how rewarding what they've had at their disposal because of the way they've been raised, how it has helped them. Both of my children were passing their national examinations in our language um, five years before uh, they needed to. Um, that has mm. helped them with their with their um, courses of study in science and maths and everything else that they've done, um, they have started to see where they didn't necessarily see it before, but they've started to see the benefits of being bilingual and, and the ability to communicate cross-culturally. They, you know, that at 17 and 18, they now have a level, they now have a level of awareness, which is really showing the benefits of bilingualism in their indigenous language. And I'm pretty confident that they will, um, that investment in time and effort. I know because it's the language of love, it was the language of our relationship. I know in times of stress, that's the first language they go back to. Um, yeah. And I think that will hold us in good stead for, for the future. We have to be optimistic, my friend. Um, yeah. Although my ability to speak um my to, to hail back to my scottish heritage and my irish heritage has been somewhat limited maori is actually an easier language to pronounce and to learn um i absolutely think that by uniting together um with the shared experiences that we have the shared vision that we have uh and understanding for the value of language and what it can do for us as people but also what it can do in terms of our cultural identity mm. intergenerationally, uh, that 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 solidarity that crosses nations, it crosses oceans, it crosses language boundaries. Um, my children will benefit from being a part of a community that is um, globally located, uh, indigenous in every way, 
and um, has a kind has a view of of the horizon of hope like no other. And if that's the legacy that we leave, what we do, well, then I'm a happy mama. I'm a happy hakui. I'm a happy mother. Well, I, I was just about to say that um, you know we're getting to to the end of our, our program today, and. Uh, I was going to tell you about uh, a group of friends of mine called Gunan Shiarach, uh, who are uh, first language uh, vernacular speakers of Gaelic in, in the Western Isles of Scotland. Uh, so they're indigenous to that place. And they have just uh, recently over the last year got together and are starting to stand their, their rights for their homeland and their language. And I was just about to say, I was just about to say, do you, do you have a message for them? Uh, but I think you may just have given us it. <laughs> oh look my message is raise the flag raise the raise our language flag to the heavens um we need to fight we need to be resilient we need to be steadfast and understanding we know when you've had access to your language you have the opportunity to to have a mirror to have a window into the world of our culture like you like no other and we need to commit, we need to be ready to have the fight and to do whatever is required to ensure that our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren can likewise be able to be standing tall and confident and, and competent in all that they can be through their language and culture. That is that we need to do whatever we can to make sure that they have that right and that legacy. So I would say to to those Fanuka, to those relations and those isles, raise the flag, dig that pole into the ground, stand resolute and strong and know that what they do, they also do for all of us all around the world, because that is the kind of tenacity and strength that we all need to ref we, we all need to feel and we all need to be a part of. Wonderful. Oh, thank you so much for that. Um, just before we go then, I would just like to say that, that has been a, a wonderful uh, which is my favourite Maori word of all time. It's the word for conversation, I believe, and it is the most onomatopoeic word the human race has ever spoken. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> um, and thank you so much for your time. Um, great to see you again and um, really hope we can catch up soon uh, and uh, perhaps uh, you'll tune into our future episodes. Uh, just to say thanks very much to everyone for watching. This has been Dr. Hannah uh, O'Regan from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, I've been Arjun McClodge here at Independence Live and on behalf of Dorloch. This has been two Indigenous perspectives. And keep me the to Hannah, I guess the whole Dunya Hagarach show. Thanks very much to, to Hannah and to everyone who's watched, and uh, we'll see you next time. Ah, I seem gassed at fact. First, you know, glad this day we're getting a chance to watch uh, back to the conversation there. Uh, what uh, what a thrilling conversation with Hannah. Uh, what a laugh we had as well, just comparing notes on, on parenting. Um, hope you all enjoyed, everyone who's watching. Uh, great privilege to be able to bring you these chats uh, from two Indigenous perspectives. Next month, uh, August 10th, we are going to uh, have another guest in. And <clears throat> our guest will be Marissa Phillips, 
who's uh, an Indigenous uh, artist and uh, language activist from the uh, Tunaha uh, people in uh, British Columbia in Canada. You can see a little of our art here on the screen. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Uh, our art just blows me away. I can't wait to get stuck into talking to her about that, talking to her uh, about how she went about uh, collecting language from uh, the elders in her community uh, and about life and uh, lore and all, all sorts of other good stuff. So uh, that will be next month's chat on August 10th. I really hope you can join us uh, for that. This uh, has been uh, Two's Indigenous Perspectives. Misha Agar, Mach Kloj, Eichi Valley, Mita. Good night and cheers around.